Welcome to Divorce Dialogues. I'm Katherine Miller. Divorce Dialogues brings expert guests to the airways to talk through your divorce questions and fill in the gray areas about separating. From thinking about divorce, to how to behave during divorce, to what to do after, this is Divorce Dialogues. Welcome to Dialogue on Divorce. I'm Catherine Miller. I'm the founder of the Miller Law Group and director at the Center for Understanding and Conflict. And I am on a mission to change how people divorce and help them divorce with dignity. And my guests today are certainly experts, I think, in that regard. And they are Michael Schieser and Nilama Ayers. They're the founders of the Inner Journey Institute, and they've been leading transformational workshops across the U.S. and Canada since 1999. They're the authors of Divorce with Love, a co-written memoir about their own divorce, and the book is designed to help others navigate through divorce with as much integrity and healing as possible. Welcome, Michael and Nilama. Thank you, Catherine. Thank you to be on your program. We're so happy to be here. And, you know, maybe, Nilama, you could give us a summary. of Tell us a little bit about your story, because it's pretty unique, and I think it will be really enlightening for our listeners. Sure. Well, we were married, and two years later had a special needs son, and another two years later, separated and eventually divorced. And we were headed, you know, down what I would call a very typical road of a painful separation, a lot of fighting and conflict. And at a certain point, we both just had an epiphany that we really wanted to do this another way. And we felt for the sake of our son and also the sake of our business and livelihood and our friendship that there had to be a way to divorce with dignity, with integrity, where love and compassion and even a potential friendship could, you know, be resurrected out of the painful situation that we were going through. So we set about to do the difficult sort of inner work and healing, each of us separately and at some points together to sort of mend our own pain and wounding that had occurred within the marriage and in the divorce process. And quite a few years later, really emerged as great friends. And that led us to, we weren't planning on doing this, but because our son had some pretty significant special needs, we found a school in Georgia. And at the time, we were living in the Bay Area, California, and we decided to move together as a divorce couple with our son and put him in the school for seven years in Georgia. And we cohabitated, we shared a home. And so it is a very, very unique story. We're back here now in the Bay Area. We live separately currently. Our son goes back and forth, but it was a wonderful and really rich time of coming together for him and for something bigger than ourselves that I think was one of the factors that allowed us to really enter this friendship that we have today. So are you saying, Nilama, that you think that the fact that you really had to unite together in order to support your son was really helpful in in helping you sort of focus on what was most important to both of you? I think that was one factor. I think the other big factor is our line of work. You know, prior to our divorce, we built up a company teaching transformational programs, helping individuals. And we felt that here we were really being called to walk our talk and do it differently and do it with integrity and compassion. And so I think we both had a quest 
even apart from our son, I think our son was definitely a catalyst and united us during rough times. But I think we have a real commitment to our own personal growth and transformation. And we wanted that to shine through even in the midst of the divorce. Michael, was there a moment when you just were out having coffee or lunch together where you just had this you know, mutual aha, well, we really need to find a way to do this differently? Or was it more of a process? No, it was more of a process. I just felt like I was down spiraling, you know, and got more and more shut down and my woundedness and my hurt had taken over and and I was just suffering, you know. And then I found myself just blaming and blaming and blaming. And at some point, you know, the famous, uh, when you point with a finger, three finger point back at yourself, and that insight, that truth came through. I think that had me willing, something has to shift on my end, you know. Well, that's, I think. There's always a difference in the divorce scenario for the one who felt he's left and the one who is leaving. And I was the one who who felt left. So I was more on the blaming game, as we call it, and stuck there, actually. I also had friends, you know, who were not just supporting me and saying, yes, great, keep blaming, but also friends who said, look, Michael, I think it's time for you to look at yourself, too. And that helped. So it was a process. Yeah, I think that a lot of people find themselves stuck in the blaming. And even people who are choosing to end the marriage will say, well, it's not me. I would never do that. It's you. You know, you're the person forcing me to do this or, you know, experience more like you're having. And I think what you're saying is that there was like a moment where you realized, you know, something had to change and the thing that had to change was your attitude. Is that correct? Yes, yes. I had to make, in a way, this sounds maybe, I don't know, grandiose, but somehow that truth is more important than me being right. And of course, having our son at that time going back and forth helped also for that moment, because I saw him in in between, you know, and out of my love for him, I didn't want him to be more impacted than he already was, just because his dad wasn't willing to really own my stuff, you know, and it's not easy to own your stuff. No, it's really it's not. It's painful. <clears throat> so this realm is a whole realm of emotional pain. And it's easier to be over there and be busy with Nilama and make her wrong than to stop and look, you know, and how did I contribute to this? Yeah. That was uh, one of the decisive moments, you know, and I really sincerely looked, not just intellectually, but kind of emotionally looked that I was part of the whole development that led for her leaving me. That was painful to own, you know, because the ego structure, this little part in me felt so much more happy if it's all her fault, you know? Yeah, it's a much easier place to be than to own your own piece of anything that feels problematic. And Nilama, what was it like for you when you saw this shift in Michael? It was unbelievable. I mean, we were for a couple of years in this dance of sort of him living in more of the blame quadrant and me living a little bit in the blame quadrant too, a little bit what you said earlier, even though I was the one that chose to leave, I blamed him that I needed to do that. I think I lived a little bit more in what I would call the guilt quadrant. And we talk about this in our book that usually the person that leaves has to deal with more of that side of things. I felt liberated when this shift happened and he started to take responsibility for his part in the ending of the marriage, because I think it was getting 
pigeonholed onto, well, it's all me. And then I got into this defensive stance of, well, no, it's not all me. It's all you. And we were just like loggerheads. We were just jammed in this spot where neither of us could really stop and look at our own stuff and take responsibility. And it it was interesting because it felt like it kind of happened simultaneously. I don't even know who started it or who was first, but it was almost like this shift was occurring in both of us. I think my guilt prevented me for so many months to take responsibility for my part in the breakdown of the marriage and the mistakes I made. I felt so guilty about leaving. I felt so guilty about how was this going to impact our son that the discomfort of that prevented me from really taking ownership. It was much easier for a while to live in Michael's the enemy and kind of make him the bad guy in my mind so I could feel okay about leaving (laughs) because at some level I didn't. You're listening to Dialogue on Divorce. I'm Catherine Miller. We're here on WVOX 1460 AM, alternate Wednesdays from 5 to 5.30 and also on WVOX.com. The show is also available as a podcast on my website, www.westchesterfamilylaw.com, as well as on iTunes and SoundCloud. And I'm talking today with Michael Schieser and Nilama Ayers about their unique journey and the book they wrote about it, Divorced with Love. And Nilama, you just mentioned something about quadrants, and you mentioned two of them, right? The blame quadrant and the guilt quadrant. There must be two others, if I'm not... If my math is know. right on that. <laughs> there should be because I called them quadrants. You're right. I would really actually probably switch out that word and call them more poles. Yeah. I think they're a polarity. And I think we were in this dance of Michael a little bit more on the blame side and me a little bit more on the guilt side. And really the antidote, the remedy was the same for both of those poles, which is we both had to stop and really look at how did I contribute to the ending of the marriage? How did I contribute to the breakdown? You know, take our attention off making the other, the bad guy, the wrong one, and really do the hard work of, all right, what's my side of this? Because here's the painful, difficult truth that we talk to couples about all the time, which is even if the other person did this terrible thing to you, quote unquote, you can't change that fact. And living in blaming them really is just causing you suffering and possibly your children suffering. You can't change what your ex did or didn't do. The only thing you really have control of is you. And people find that shift when they are able to make it. They find it so empowering, actually. It often surprises them that there's something better than blame that actually can uplift me and inspire me to move forward. And I don't have to live in that bitterness that starts to close our hearts down. You know, one of my favorite quotes or sayings is that holding on to resentment is like swallowing rat poison and hoping that the rat will die. <laughs> As I listen to you, you know. <laughs> That's it. That's it, Catherine. <laughs> but still, there's so many of us who serve ourselves up a cup of resentment every single morning, you know, with our morning coffee. I mean, we're stuck sometimes. And so, Michael, how did you get yourself unstuck? I mean, what was it that helped you shift your perspective so profoundly? It's a process, and I saw I had become a victim, and I'm not used to live my life from a victim place, but I was stuck in the victim place. Yeah, and you took the steps. And that awareness came, oh my God, you know, from this place, I have no choice. I'm just totally at effect. And I think one of the important parts to understand is 
It's this sense of being a defect that is so painful and that causes the blaming. Because when I blame, I don't feel like I'm a defect. It gives me some sense, you know, of strength or so, false sense of strength. And to really get, okay, we use this metaphor in our uh, work with people in relationships in general. A relationship is like a tennis court. And when you blame, when I blamed, I was climbing over the net. And I was busy over there for relationship to come into more of a balance again. I had to climb back on my side of the net. And here, look at my side. Here is where choice resides. And I look at my stuff. I think it's natural that you climb over the net. Can't be avoided. It's a face. Then coming back home and owning my side first. And then there's another step we can talk in a moment. I was just going to say, I think it's important to underline that it is natural, especially if you are the one that was left. I think it's natural to go through a phase of anger, bitterness, and resentment. So we're not saying, oh my God, don't ever feel any of those feelings. We certainly felt our share of those. I think what happened for us was realizing if we stay any longer in this, it's poisoning our own life. It's poisoning our own heart. It's going to impact our ability to find love again with somebody else. And that, I can say for me, was the thing that, oh my God, just recognizing sort of what you said, Catherine, I'm drinking this poison every morning. I'm the one suffering the most from this. Yeah was the catalyst that finally said, I want to drink something else in the morning. (laughs) I'll bet that writing the book was somewhat healing together. Is that true? Absolutely. Absolutely. I think sometimes the book was a whole other level of the healing. I mean, we'd already come through a large part of what we shared with you, and we were good friends at the time. We were living in Georgia when we wrote the book. But the biggest thing that happened in writing the book and you'll see it when you read it, every chapter is divided into sort of my side of what happened and then Michael's. We didn't read each other's part of the chapter until the book was done. So we went through the entire story without really knowing what the other person was writing. We had some parameters around time periods, but when we did the reread and we read through it all, we recognized that the same situation, the same event We experienced them totally differently. And it was another level of healing because initially when we read through it, we started getting in arguments again. Well, it didn't happen that way. No, no, no. It wasn't like that. It wasn't like that. You said this. No, you said that. And and it was like a whole other wave of resentment came back again. And what we came to realize, and we wrote this in the foreword of the book, we left the discrepancies in there because the healing that happened was recognizing, you know, It doesn't actually matter that the fact, what matters is, wow, you experienced it that way, and I experienced it this way. And if we can have compassion for the way each of us experienced things, that took the healing to a whole other level. I really love that because, you know, oftentimes I do a lot of mediation in my office, and people come in and they will have just such a different story. I mean, one person will say, you know, the couch at home is red. The other one will say, are you crazy? It's blue. I mean, literally at that level. And, exactly, and right. Exactly. And then they'll both try to convince me how right they are. And one of the <laughs> things that I, you know, always say is it really doesn't matter how the universe sees it. What really matters is that you see it as blue and you see it as red. And right. we have to sort of find a way through this that accommodates blue and red. 
Right. You know? And, and neuroscience actually is confirming that we experience reality totally subjective. They found out in their research all that we remember is never objective. Yeah. That kind of helped us to own our differences. I mean, because actually the other person's reality is in some way a part of your own reality if you have to deal with that other person. And you're never going to convince them, I mean, argue with them and just say, no, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong. Oh, you're, you're right, I'm wrong. Like, that's not part of the human condition. Right. That is the bulk of actually what we do in our work with people is just that, to help them recognize that even though this person sees the couch as blue and you don't, you see it as red, can you open your heart wide enough to accommodate that they see it as blue and let that be okay? And in that, our heart actually grows its capacity for empathy, for compassion, for understanding. I mean, it's interesting that it's in the conflict with the other where our heart really is tested and can grow. That's a really, I think, interesting perspective. And I'd like you to tell us about the work that you do with people. But first, I'd like to remind people that they're listening to Dialogue on Divorce on WVOX is also available as a podcast on my website, www.westchesterfamilylaw.com and on iTunes and SoundCloud. And I'd also like to give you the opportunity to let our listeners know where they can find out more information about your work and your book. And I also understand that you have a online program that accompanies the book for people who want to take the work themselves another step. We do. We do, Catherine. So everything is available on our website, which is www.innerjourneyinstitute.com. You'll see a page there for the book. You'll see pages of the different programs we offer, and you'll see a page for what's called the Healing Heart Protocol. And that's the online course we developed for people that want to be guided through a similar process that we went through after their own breakup or divorce, how to heal the heart, how to do this difficult inner work and be guided in a very step-by-step process so that they can emerge, you know, transformed and whole again. And do you do personal work with people? We also do personal work. We do personal coaching on the phone, on Skype. People come here and do personal intensives with one of us or both of us. And then we do teach workshops and seminars across the U.S. and Canada. Can you summarize for us a little bit about what your process is like for people? Because I can imagine them thinking, wow, that sounds fantastic, but I could never do that. These people must be just, you know, yogis or somehow, you know, extraordinary human beings. And you must work with, you know, just regular ordinary people, even though all of us, of course, are extraordinary in our own way. These thousands of people we have worked with are people just like your listeners. We were in the ditch. We were just as ordinary. One of the steps is basically learning to actually really be present to one's feelings is one very important part of the journey, that we own the feelings that we experience and learn to work them through. Then in the next phase, that is that healing heart protocol, and that's we also repeat in our work, is what we call stepping in the other person's shoes. And that actually was the the crucial shift between us personally, and that's why we do that in our work. At some point through a process, I was willing and guided by my inner higher self, if you want, to really open up to what the whole journey was on the Lama side in our marriage. Until that point, you see, I was stuck on my side. But once I really got 
how she was impacted by my behavior in the marriage, and I really got and felt her pain. That helped me then to really develop compassion for her, and that opened my heart to her. We've heard that famous quote, you know, about don't judge a person unless you've walked a mile in their shoes. And as Michael said, this for us was the pivotal turning point when we went through this process. For me, when I was able to go beyond the guilt and just experience how is it to be in his shoes? How was it to be left the way I left him? How was it to experience that level of shock and helplessness that he went through? When I let myself open to that, it was unbelievably liberating. And I know people listening might be like, oh my God, why do I want to open myself to another person's pain? It literally was the key that unlocked the door to the healing that we went through because it opened the heart to recognize I didn't plan to cause him pain and our behaviors have consequences and our choices hurt people sometimes. And when I could own that and feel that, all that guilt that I'd carried for years was released. It was miraculous to me that doing something in one sense so simple and yet very difficult to really feel another person's pain takes a lot of courage. And we've put that process into all the work we do, by the way, not just divorce. I mean, we've got people who are struggling in their relationship with family members, in their relationship with their parents, in their relationship with children, with colleagues at work, with bosses. So we do this. This has become our signature process where we guide people into how is it to experience another human being? What does that really mean and how do you do that? You know, Nilama, it sounds a little counterintuitive that when you opened your heart and you really allowed yourself to understand the pain that Michael was feeling as a result of your deciding to end the marriage, that that alleviated your guilt. I mean, in some ways, it sounds like you would feel more guilty. So can well, you- I discovered an interesting thing about guilt, and this is just my experience, though I've talked to quite a few others and it's been backed up. Guilt has a funny way of creating a barrier of protection for us. And I'll just explain to you what I mean by that. Feeling guilty about leaving the marriage for me was a very mental thing. It was like, I feel bad that I did this. I feel bad that I've left the marriage. It was unbelievably different to say I feel bad about doing something to then to actually feel what I had done. I don't know if you know what I mean by that distinction. It's like, as long as I was feeling bad about it, I wasn't actually feeling directly how it was for Michael. It was still me. Mm -hmm. I was feeling bad about it versus, wait a minute, let me enter into his experience and really try to get how this was for him. Well, it sounds like what you're saying is it creates a bottleneck of, well, you can't be compassionate because you're feeling bad about your own behavior. Exactly. You've said it better than me, Catherine. That's exactly what it does. It creates a bottleneck. It creates a subtle form of protection, actually. And it keeps us insular versus let me really feel that my behavior caused this pain. That's not an easy step. It wasn't an easy step for me, and it's not an easy step often for folks that I'm working with. And when people are able to do it, it is revolutionary. It's something profound releases because... First, you're feeling your own pain, then you're feeling the pain of this other person, and doing so opens up the door of compassion. And that compassion somehow heals that guilt that so many of us carry. Well, that sounds like a great 
a great piece of advice and some great words to live by. Michael Schieser, Nilama Ayers, thank you so much for being our guests on Dialogue on Divorce. Many, 